One of the deadliest disasters in recorded history occurred the day after Christmas, 2004. A 9.1 magnitude earthquake in the Indian Ocean set off a series of tsunamis with waves as high as 100 foot. It ended up killing 230,000 people in 14 different countries. One of the heaviest hit areas was Phuket Island in southern Thailand. Thousands of vacationers and tourists died on Phuket Island, but not at Mikhail Beach, thanks to a 10-year-old little girl named Tilly Smith. You see, Tilly had studied tsunamis in her geography class. So while she was in the ocean, she noticed the ocean beginning to bubble and rushing out from the shore. She knew exactly what was happening. She told her mom they needed to get off the beach. It was a tsunami. Her mom wasn't even sure what Tilly meant until her daughter referred to it as a tidal wave. Tilly and her mom convinced the others to evacuate the beach. Minutes later, the giant wave surged over the shore, demolishing everything in its path. The resort was destroyed, but thanks to a 10-year-old, the beach was one of the few places on Phuket Island where no one was killed or even seriously injured. Afterwards, the hotel manager referred to little Tilly as a hero. Lives were saved when a young 10-year-old girl saw danger and was willing to tell someone. This morning, we want to talk about another unlikely hero who warned his people of danger. A man called Ezekiel. His name means God will strengthen. And indeed, God did. The Lord chose Ezekiel to be his spokesman to the Hebrew people for more than 22 years. Ezekiel was born a priest, one of a cast of thousands, who trained to serve God in the rituals of the temple in Jerusalem. His priestly duties would have included lighting candles and making bread and blowing the trumpets and arranging the wood on the altar. But God had a far more important mission for Ezekiel. His world was upended in 597 B.C. when the Babylonians paid a visit to Jerusalem. And as a show of force, their general, Nebuchadnezzar, took a few of the Jew, Jew, Jerusalem's nobles back to Babel. Ezekiel was one of them. He settled on the shores of the Chebar River in the heart of what is today Iraq. The Chebar was actually a canal that connected the two great rivers of Babylon, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Today, this whole region in Iraq is known as Al-Khalif, which is Arabic for Ezekiel. The tomb of Ezekiel is located in the region on the shores there of the Euphrates River. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, says that his ministry began in the 30th year. But the 30th year of what? I think the best answer is the 30th year of Ezekiel's own life. According to Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, though a priest was groomed for his duties since the time of his birth, he couldn't actually begin his ministry until he reached the age of 30 years old. Imagine what this meant for Ezekiel. He had trained his whole life for the priesthood to serve God in the Jerusalem temple. The day comes when he can finally ply his trade and be used by God. But now he's 600 miles from Jerusalem, 
far from the temple courts. How frustrating to look forward to something your whole life only to be deprived of it on the eve of its commencement. What if on the night before your 16th birthday, the state legislator changed the driving age to 21? I mean, how disappointing would that be? Depressing. And that's how Ezekiel could have felt had his eyes not been fixed on God. Rather than be a priest with no temple, God brings his servant Ezekiel into a dynamic relationship with himself. He makes Ezekiel a prophet, and he gives him a vision that alters his life forever. As a priest, Ezekiel probably had a sedentary view of God. He saw God as anchored, as fixed in one place. Jewish worship was highly centralized. Jews from all over were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. The Jewish temple was referred to in the scripture as God's footstool. In the Old Testament, the temple was the one place on earth where you knew you could find God. But that never meant that God was limited to his temple. And this is what God stressed to the prophet Ezekiel. For God gives Ezekiel a vision of his glorious throne. But it's not a stationary throne. It's mobile. It's actually a throne chariot. It's a throne on wheels. And Ezekiel sees it rev up and move. When God decides wheels up, angels, specifically cherubim with wings no less, propel God's throne wherever he wishes. You remember Elijah was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. Well, this is what Ezekiel also sees. God's fiery chariot, his throne chariot moving as a celestial fireball, and it forever changes this Jewish priest's concept of God. You see, the God of Israel isn't a God who sits isolated in a temple. He's not a God who resides behind four walls. Rather, he is a God who roams the heavens. He is always on the move. Babylon is as much his domain as Jerusalem. He is the God of all earth and heaven. Ezekiel would say amen to verses like Deuteronomy 33 verse 26. There is no one like God who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. Or 2 Samuel 2 verse 22 verse 11 which says of God, He rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. God is everywhere all of the time. He's moving about. On his throne chariot. And Ezekiel was called to be God's mouthpiece to his people. For two decades, Ezekiel was God's press secretary to the Jews who were living in Babylon. And it wasn't just the vision that he saw of God's chariot, his throne, that shaped the tone of his ministry. For Ezekiel was also given an illustration. In chapters 3, and again in chapter 33... He's told of the watchman on the walls. In chapter 3, God calls Ezekiel into the ministry. And in the succeeding chapters, we discover just how excruciatingly difficult his ministry is going to be. Over and over, God has Ezekiel act out these spiritual skits, these living parables that dramatize lessons for God's people. In chapter 24, verse 24, God says to the Jews, Ezekiel is a sign to you. 
It was through Ezekiel's life that God spoke to his people. It was through these skits that he was conveying lessons. But this wasn't easy for Ezekiel. In fact, this required sacrifice. Some of what God called Ezekiel to do was tough on his body. At one point, he laid on his side for over a year. Imagine the bed sores, the muscle spasms. Some of what Ezekiel did was even tougher on his ego. At times, he was misunderstood, even mocked. And his signs were most brutal on his heart. His prophecies reach a crescendo in chapter 24. On the day Jerusalem is besieged and surrounded by the invading troops, back in Babel, another death occurs. Ezekiel's own wife dies suddenly. Perhaps it was from a stroke, maybe a heart attack, we're not told. But two deaths occurred on the same day. The prophet's wife died to illustrate that God's wife, Jerusalem, was dead in sin and judgment had begun. And that's not all. When Mrs. Ezekiel dies, the prophet Ezekiel becomes mute. He is silenced by God. Ezekiel loses his speech. Once the siege of Jerusalem begins, God's warning ends. Judgment is now a reality. God had said all along what he was going to say. God now goes silent and he makes sure that his prophet is silent too. It wasn't until 23 months later, after the fall of Jerusalem, that a messenger reaches Babylon with news of the city's destruction. That's when God opens Ezekiel's mouth again. This time, he speaks words of hope and promises of restoration to both Jews and all mankind. You see, the first half of Ezekiel's ministry was a forecast of judgment, while the second half was the promise of new birth. But both halves begin with the same illustration. Ezekiel is shown that he is God's watchman on the wall. Like that little girl, Tilly Smith, on the beach at Phuket Island, and like Ezekiel, we too need to sound the alarm. For there is a tsunami of judgment headed our way. The God who loves us enough to die in our place, to send His only Son to save us, will judge us if we continue in our rebellion and make a mockery of His plans. A tsunami is coming toward the shore that no one can escape. It brings with it both the judgment of sin and the blessing of new birth, depending on the attitude of the person's heart. But either way, people today need to be alerted. Someone needs to be trumpeting the truth. This is the lesson hammered home to Ezekiel twice, no less, in chapter 3 and in chapter 33. And that's where we want to read this morning, Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, 
nor from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Now, in Ezekiel's day, urban life went on within walled cities. Towns of antiquity were surrounded by high stone walls. In fact, an approaching caravan could tell from a distance a lot about a city's prominence and its prosperity by the size and shape and strength of its walls. A city's walls provided its citizens two things. First, walls provided protection. They kept out invading armies and marauding bandits and wild animals, anything that might disturb the peace or cause the people harm. But second, the walls also provided the people with perspective. Because most ancient walls had no windows, the inhabitants of the city were unable to see what was going on beyond their own little world in the streets of the city in their daily routine. These walls could create a false sense of security. The city's occupants could be lulled into assuming that all was well, when in reality, danger was just outside the walls. That's why every city employed watchmen or lookouts who would be stationed on top of the walls. The watchmen provided the city's citizens an aerial view of what was going on in the surrounding countryside. And when they spotted danger, it was the watchman's duty to quickly blow his trumpet and sound the alarm. Understand the watchman had a vantage point the people inside the city lacked. A vigilant lookout could see dangers at a distance. He could alert the people inside the city in time to prepare for what was coming. And in a sense, God had made Ezekiel a spiritual lookout, a watchman on the wall. Ezekiel had a vantage point that his fellow Jews lacked. They were all wrapped up in their own personal worlds, in the daily grind. Only Ezekiel saw from the aerial view, from heaven's perspective. For Ezekiel knew God. He studied God's word. He understood the dangers of sin and relished the blessings of God. Ezekiel was led by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel considered today in light of eternity. Most of his Jewish peers were just trapped in their daily rut. They were content with just life within the walls. Oh, they had their bread in circuses. They lived for food and entertainment. As long as there was something to eat, they didn't think much beyond the next party or the next holiday. But Ezekiel realized that there was more to life than what we can taste and touch, what we can see and savor. Ezekiel knew that you and I were made for more, that God has created us with a higher purpose, that there is a whole in every human heart that can only be filled by God Himself. Ezekiel knew that we were made for fellowship with God. And he knew that without God, we're headed for judgment. For if we rebel against Him, 
If we spurn God's mercy, a tsunami is coming. Every sin has its payday. And as God's watchman, it was Ezekiel's job to sound the alarm and alert the people of the coming danger. And this is also every Christian's job. We too are spiritual lookouts. God has called us to be watchmen on the wall. And he's positioned each of us at a certain spot on the wall. There are people around you, folks that you see regularly, in your family, on your team, at your school, in your office, a part of your neighborhood, at the health club or the ballpark or the grocery store or the gas station. You see them on a regular basis. And they're headed down a path without Jesus. And they need to be warned. Like Ezekiel, you are God's watchman. You're a divine lookout. You have a vantage point other people lack. You see, our friends don't see what we see. They can't see what we see. Folks without God's Spirit are blind to the ways and will of God. They're dead in their sin. Spiritually speaking, they can't see the hand in front of their face. They're certainly oblivious to what God is doing in the world at large the judgments that are lurking in the distance. They're living for today with little thought of tomorrow. But you are God's watchman. You have His Word, His Spirit, His wisdom, His love, His promptings, His discernment. You see the dangers, what's unbiblical or what's ungodly or what's unloving or what's unforgiving. And God's Word to Ezekiel is applicable to us. If you embrace this responsibility and warn the folks within your walls, God will be pleased. Perhaps they'll be saved. And you, you'll be spared unnecessary guilt. But the reverse is also true. For if you ignore your responsibility as a watchman, if you care less about your fellow man, if you're content to just live your own life and leave well enough alone, and fail to warn the folks within your walls. God will be disappointed. People you you know will fall victim, and you, my friend, will be to blame. This is why we need to be good lookouts. Let me share with you some interesting statistics. I read that 2% of all Christians are converted through media. That is, literature, TV, radio, internet, etc., 6% become believers through the influence of a particular pastor, and another 6% through a church's evangelistic outreach. But that leaves a whopping 86% of all Christians who embrace Jesus due to the efforts of a friend. It's the personal touch. It's the individual care that reaches people. But here's the alarming statistics. It's reported that only 5% of Christians in America have ever led another person to Jesus. Even more troublesome, pollster George Barna says that among born-again Christians, only 53% even feel a responsibility to share their faith with other people. That means that nearly half of all Christians not only don't share their faith with anyone else, they don't even sense the responsibility to do so. In contrast, there are Korean churches that have an interesting qualification for membership. 
to join, you have to bring with you the person that you've led to Christ. Korean Christians take seriously their responsibility as a watchman. So much so, you can't be a church member until you've led someone to Jesus. The story's told of D.L. Moody. He had a habit of telling one person each day about Jesus. Every single day, he would tell one person. Once late in the day, he realized that he had gone about his business that day without fulfilling his usual commitment. That's when he saw a man walking by. He asked him, he said, sir, are you a Christian? The man snapped back, you mind your own business. That's when D.L. Moody responded, sir, this is my business. And sharing Jesus is also my business and your business. For we are God's watchmen on the wall. As Christians, we have different values in the world. We live a different life. And sometimes people think we're off the wall. But really, we're on the wall. The reason we're misunderstood is that we see more than others see. We see God. He reveals Himself to our hearts. We see His holiness and purity and justice. We also see our own sin. And we know we're not unlike other people. We realize that all humans have sinned. We all need a Savior. We see heaven and hell and what lies in the balance. You see, from the top of the walls, we see more. And it's up to us to warn people loud and clear when we see danger on the horizon. If we fall asleep on top of the wall, if we get lazy, if we become distracted or get apathetic and don't warn the people we know, the story ends tragic for them and for us. To be a good watchman on the wall, there are five words that you and I need to remember. You should write these words down. Five words that we should remember. Empathize. Second, recognize. Third, verbalize. Fourth, depressurize. And then fifth, personalize. Empathize recognize, verbalize, depressurize, and personalize. And with the time I have left, we're going to analyze each one. How about that? First, to be a watchman on the wall, you need to empathize. In verse 16, God's commissioning of Ezekiel comes at the end of a seven-day period. Prior to these seven days, Ezekiel had seen this vision of God's throne chariot. He saw God's glory, the stubbornness of the Jews around him, the determination his job would require. And when the vision was over, he just crashed. He was wasted. He was exhausted. Ezekiel was overwhelmed by what he had seen. And he spent the whole week just processing, just thinking through, just chilling over what he had seen. Ezekiel will never see God or others or himself in the same way again. That's why the first requirement of a good watchman is to rethink. That's why we're stationed on top of the wall. It's a new view from up here. See, down in the trenches, on the city streets, in the midst of the daily grind, we tend to see people as problems, don't we? People are roadblocks to our plans. 
or their annoyances to our lifestyle, or their obstacles to what we want, or their dependents who want our help, or their inconveniences, or their pests. That's how we view people. Driving down Highway 78, seldom do I view my fellow motorists as eternal souls either headed to heaven or hell. More often than not, I see them as crazed knuckleheads who are endangering my own personal survival. I mean, it's hard to muster much mercy or empathy from street level. That's why a watchman needs to get above it all and learn to see people from a new perspective. Again, once a man visited Dwight Moody and told him he wanted to be a great soul winner like like Moody. He told the man to go to the window and tell him what he saw. He said, well, I see a street filled with traffic and pedestrians. Moody said, look again and tell me what you see. He looked a second time and replied, well, I see people, men and women, boys and girls. Finally, D.L. Moody walked to the window and with tears in his eye, he said, I see people going to hell without Jesus. And until you see people like that, you will not lead them to Christ. This is what it means to be on the wall. God wants us to have an eternal perspective. People are not just people. They have been created in the image of God. They have been purchased by the blood of Jesus or the price has been paid. They are forever beings who will one day pass from time into eternity, either into an everlasting bliss or into everlasting torment. On top of the wall, we can see that. We need to empathize for people. Well, second, to be a watchman, you also need to recognize. Hey, in Ezekiel's day, there were dozens of villages and towns dotting the Judean countryside. Jerusalem was just one city. A watchman on the walls of Jerusalem wasn't responsible for alerting all the other cities of Judah. There were specific parameters to his own accountability. He was responsible for only those people within his own walls, within the sphere of his own influence. And this is what you and I need to realize. Every Christian has their own specific sphere of influence. Yes, Jesus calls us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when you read the book of Acts, you realize that the New Testament church did just that. They won the world for Jesus, but they did so by each person taking care of their own slice of that world. You see, one day God may lay it on your heart to go overseas to share the gospel. But for now, who are the specific people within the sphere of your influence? The girls on your tennis team? The guy who works on your car? The business associate you interact with every week? The clerk you see every time you go to the grocery store? Your own family and friends? Here's what I'd like for you to do this morning. I want you to get out your announcement sheet and a pen if you have one. Or get out your phone, your little notepad or whatever you write on. I want you to get it out. And here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to think of two people in your life who don't know Jesus. And I want you to jot their names down on that announcement sheet. Just two people. Two people in your world who don't know Jesus. 
You rub shoulders with them all the time. But you know you won't rub shoulders with them in eternity if things don't change. If they don't receive Jesus. Hey, I want you to start by simply praying for these two people over the next few weeks. I'm going to challenge you to do more. But first, just pray. Just pray for them. For as a watchman, the initial step is for us to recognize those within our walls and to develop an empathy toward them. When Mark Rick was first hired as the football coach of the Georgia Bulldogs, ESPN Magazine, they did an interview in which Coach Rick shared his Christian testimony. He became a believer in Jesus while working as a coaching assistant at Florida State. In 1986, a Seminole player, football player, Pablo Lopez, was killed in a gunshot outside of a party. The next day, in a team meeting, Coach Bobby Bowden spoke of his own faith. He told the players and the coaches that because he had accepted Jesus Christ, he knew where he would spend eternity. That's when Bowden, he pointed to the empty chair where Lopez would have been seated. And he asked everyone the question, What if it was you? Do you know where you'd be spending eternity? The next day, Mark Rick visited Coach Bowden and with his help embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Typically, you don't think of Bobby Bowden or any football coach, for that matter, as an evangelist. I doubt seriously if that's how he sees himself. But he is definitely a good watchman. He didn't preach the gospel to the world but he made sure his own players and assistant coaches understood. The people under his immediate influence, he made sure that they knew the truth. And that's what we need to do. God isn't necessarily calling you to preach to the world, but who are the people within your walls? Who are the people within your sphere of influence? Do they know the truth? We need to empathize, we need to recognize, and then third, to be a watchman, We need to verbalize. For the next few weeks, I've asked you to only pray for the two people whose names you've jotted down. It may take a couple of weeks for you to develop the proper empathy toward them. But realize, with each one of these people you're praying for, just praying for them will not be enough. For eventually, you're going to have to speak up. You're going to have to go verbal. Oh, but Pastor Sandy, you don't understand. I believe in walking the walk. I believe in witnessing by example. And I do too. But what good is walking the walk if you never talk to talk? If you don't eventually tell them what makes you tick? So what if people consider you a good guy? They also need to know why you're a good guy. An example needs an explanation. Imagine a watchman on the wall. He sees a gang of marauders from a distance. He's a faithful lookout. From the moment he sees this distant dust cloud, he keeps his eyes fixed on the pack. He never takes his eyes off them. He follows the horses all the way into the city. He even watches the men kill and pillage and burn. But all he did was watch. Did that make him a good watchman? No way. When the watchman sees a danger, he has to sound an alarm. He has to shout loud and clear. 
In fact, it is his duty to make sure everyone within his walls receives the news. He has to go verbal. Reminds me of the Christian who prayed, Lord, if you want me to witness to someone today, give me a sign. Well, later that same day, this big, burly man, he sits down next to the guy on the bus. The bus is nearly empty now, but the man walks onto the bus. He sits right next to him in the adjacent seat. This timid Christian is anxiously waiting on his stop to exit the bus when all of a sudden this big, burly man starts to weep. Through sobs and tears, he cries, I need to be saved. I'm lost. I need Jesus. Won't somebody please tell me how to be saved? That's when the Christian next to him, he drops his head and he prays, Lord, is this the sign? (laughs) It's been said, some Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. The sign has to jump up and hit them in the mouth in order for them to open their mouth. You know, I've discovered That when I'm willing to speak for Jesus, there is no shortage of opportunities to do so. All it takes is the willingness to go verbal. Fourth, to be a good watchman, you can depressurize. Ezekiel 3 is really a liberating passage. It takes the pressure off. Yes, we have the responsibility to empathize and recognize and then verbalize, but this analogy makes it crystal clear that the results are not our responsibility, they're God's. Only the Holy Spirit can convict and convince a person's heart. Only God's Spirit can open blind eyes and create a true transformation. This is why God tells Ezekiel in verse 19, If you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. In other words, the old proverb applies. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Our job is to warn and witness, to pray and pray and pray. But once we've shared the truth, we can leave the situation in God's hands. It's now an issue between God and them. The Bible says every human being is a free moral agent. We're all free to make our own spiritual decisions. I can't make your decision, and you can't make mine. All I can do is witness and warn. And once I do it faithfully, my obligation has been fulfilled. And this is true of witnessing to an unbeliever who has no faith or warning a believer who is about to stray from their faith. Once you've done what God asks, then it's up to him. As a pastor, the Lord often lays it on my heart to warn people in our church of the sin in their lives and its impending danger. What kind of shepherd would I be if I wasn't willing to warn the sheep? And trust me, it's never something that I enjoy. I'm not fond of confrontation. People get mad when you do this kind of thing. It's easier just to sit back sometimes and look the other way. But if I do... God holds me responsible for their plight. As God told Ezekiel, their blood will be on your hands. It's often my duty to risk a negative reaction to speak the truth. This is the problematic situation parents face with their teenagers. That relatives face with other relatives. That friends face with other friends. 
If I say something to them, will they ever speak to me again? That's what goes through our minds. Why upset the apple cart? Why risk rocking the boat? Why create more turmoil than there already is? Hey, restraining your teenager will probably prompt a fight. It'll get messy. You'll have to burn some energy. It'll require some backbone. All right, it's just easier to turn your head and ignore it. But a parent is the watchman on the wall in his or her child's life. Hey, if you see a friend in danger, it's up to you to sound the alarm. If he or she takes heed, great. If he or she doesn't, at least you've done what God called you to do. In a sense, the pressure's off. You've done your duty. Well, here's one more qualification for a good lookout for the Lord. A faithful watchman needs to not only empathize and recognize and verbalize and depressurize, but he also needs to personalize. For I can see some of you now. Wow, I got to warn the people within my walls. So you load up the minivan with gospel tracts and pamphlets. And this afternoon, you go through the neighborhood tacking them on every mailbox in the neighborhood. And when you roll through that last cul-de-sac and you tack that one to the last mailbox, you breathe a sigh of relief. Wow, I'm done. And you think you've done your responsibility. No, you haven't. You know what that is? That's just gospel dumping. That's what I call it. Gospel dumping. This is what happens when you, you're feeling guilty, you need to share your faith, and so you see someone on the street, you go up cold turkey, and you just kind of dump the gospel on them. Man, you need Jesus. Get right or get left. Turn or burn, buddy. Deny or fry. Get saved or get scorched. Repent, man, and don't forget I told you so. And then you walk away, you wipe the sweat off your forehead, and you think you've done your religious duty. No, you haven't. That's not, wishing, that's not witnessing for Jesus. That's just trying to get the monkey off your own back. Absolving yourself of responsibility isn't what pleases God. You see, there are some people who are more concerned with doing their duty than they are really seeing people get saved. This is what I call bullhorn evangelism. You've probably all seen a guy with a bullhorn. He's on the street corner somewhere, usually has an inflammatory sign that says turn or burn or the like. And he's yelling at everybody who passes by. The message might be true, but more often than not, these guys are more concerned with just relieving their own guilt than really being effective at their stated goal. This is not the kind of effort that pleases God. I'm sure Ezekiel would agree that part of the job of a watchman is to communicate his warning with a certain sound. One that everyone understands. Understands it for what it is. If a watchman warns the people in a language different than the one they speak, or if he approaches them in a way that's offensive and that they never hear the message, can he just walk away smugly and say he's done his job? I don't think so. The communication has to be relevant. It has to come from his heart. It needs to be presented in love. 
It has to be personalized if you want it to be heard. It's been said, contact without tact has little impact. And that's a fact. If I come in from mowing the lawn and my wife asks me if I want a glass of dihydrogen oxide, I might think, what in the world have I done now? She's trying to poison me. What if she offers me a glass of water? I'll appreciate the gesture. And of course, dihydrogen oxide is water. But it's the way the offer is presented, isn't it? That's the difference. And this is true for the watchman on the wall. He not only has a responsibility to warn, but to warn in such a way that those within his walls will be receptive to the warning. Let me close with another football illustration. I don't understand this. It's baseball season, but I got football illustrations this morning. But in 1990, Bill McCartney, a devout Christian, coached the University of Colorado to a national championship. During the season, the coach invited a famous Christian evangelist to address his players before one of the games. Well, the evangelist, he went on for 30 minutes exhorting the players to reach beyond their personal limits, to pull together as a team, to fight, to win that night's football game. When the speaker finished, he sat down next to the coach. He asked him, he said, well, what did you think of that? McCartney told him, all you seem to care about is whether or not they win a football game. And all I care about is whether or not they know Jesus. We need to swap places. You see, apparently what the world really needs is not more preachers who are into football, but more Christians who really care about the souls of people. We need watchmen on the wall who know their job, who empathize and care for the souls of others, who recognize those under their influence. Don't forget those two names you wrote down who are willing to verbalize and speak up, who depressurize and trust Jesus with the results, and who personalize and seek to be as effective as they possibly can. And like the little girl on the beach, don't miss the main point. When you see danger, it's your responsibility to say so.